Good afternoon, everyone. Shabbat Shalom. Uh, today we're going to, because of all of the political uh, drama that's going on in the United States and the fact that the entire planet is obsessed with the elections, um, many are asking me, what would Maimonides say about Trump? What would he say about Biden, about the elections? And the truth is that as much as I promote myself as a Maimonides aficionado, it's hard to tell what he would say about something like that. Um, I'm not going to try to push my own political agendas into Rabenu. That would be unfair. But what I would do is discuss, discuss something that's tangentially uh, connected to it and can shed some light on the metapolitics of Maimonides. Okay? So, and the subject is going gonna, is gonna to be the obvious uh, uh, red herring of the Messianic age and what the Messiah is and what does waiting for the Messiah mean and what does faith in the Messiah entail. And this is really a subject that has, been, has, has driven the world crazy, um, both religious, from a religious perspective, entire religions have been generated um, over this apocalyptic vision of a future, a utopian future, a messianic ideal. And there's also secular movements, which also um, posit that history is linear and there's a process. And at some point in the process, um, the oppressed will rise up and not be oppressed anymore by getting rid of their oppressors. And entire ideologies have been, have been generated. And I would say that they're all based on this assumption that history is linear and that the, the end of history is a messianic period, this uh, utopia, as it were. Right? Now, uh, this is something that Jews have kind of created, invented, the Torah. Non-Jews have adopted it. And it would be worth looking at in its original sources and how Maimonides viewed it as opposed to how it's being taught and understood today by people who you know, claim to be Jewish. So I'll start with uh, the general idea from the Tanakh itself. Right? Even, already in the five books of Moses, in the Torah, you see discussions of a future time when things will be better, to be very general. And in different ways that idea is expressed. Either horrific punishments for evil people and then people will return, or, you know, God fulfilling his covenant and giving us the land and everyone is going to live in peace and in harmony with each other. And this idea appears throughout the prophets in different forms and in different versions. Right? Throughout the Tanakh this appears. In fact, it wouldn't be... It wouldn't be an exaggeration to say that every single prophet in the entire Tanakh mentions the coming of the Messiah in some form. And it's worth, for the biblical scholars among us, it's worth going through each one and seeing how they dealt with it, how they treated it, because this is actually quite interesting. Now, um, as time went on, the, the idea be, took on different forms, even after the Tanakh, the 24 books of, uh, of the Bible, as it's called, Scripture, was sealed and canonized. The idea continued to evolve based on changing times, which is kind of normal. And 
in its original form, it's hard for me to tell you what the Tanakh said about Messiah because, you know, Jeremiah would explain it one way, Isaiah in another way, and Moses another way. They, you know, different people lived in different times and had different modes of expression. But overall, it was a prophecy that in the future, the people of Israel, the nation of Israel, all 12 tribes of them, all right, will return to the land of Israel. They will uh, keep the covenant with God, the Sinaitic covenant. God will keep his covenant with us in return. And the temple will be built and, you know, sacrifices will be offered again. And that's the common denominator of all of the biblical descriptions of the Messianic era. Right? Now, in some descriptions... There's a discussion of a specific individual, a Messiah that will come and save everyone, and he or other. There's, a, there's an individual who's, who, who's a big part of the process. And then in other prophets, you'll find that that's not stressed very much. There's no discussion of this Messiah as a, as a character, or very little stress of that. All right? Now, us Jews, we were never terribly specific about what form the future redemption will take place, okay? We kind of would uh, adapt our views to the changing times. So, for example, in the Second Temple period, you had, um, you know, the Bar Kokhba revolt. And this guy's name is Simon. Uh, he was named Bar Kokhba as, a, you know, son of the star, like uh, alluding to the prophecy of a star will come out of Jacob and, you know, shoot forward into the future and be the Messiah and whatnot. So this, this person didn't, didn't claim he was the Messiah. He didn't come and say, uh, he didn't make any religious claims. He didn't, wasn't a religious leader. He was in contact with religious leaders. History says that he was a, an observant man. But he wasn't, he, he wasn't making a religious argument. He was making a military one. And his argument was that he has the training, the talent, and the men to defeat the Roman Empire and retake Judea. That's what he claimed. And some of the rabbis agreed with him and went along with him. And they just, as he was successful at, at first, they said, well, this guy is defeating Rome and he's rebuilding the temple. There may have been some preliminary work done to rebuild the temple. Well, he must be the Messiah that the prophet spoke about. It wasn't a, there was no fanfare. There was no, uh, you didn't have this thousands of years of waiting for a mystical, mystical Messiah to show up. So just call, this was 70 years or 60 years after the destruction of the temple. So... Yeah, this is a prophecy that's being fulfilled now. It was looked at in kind of a natural uh, way. It wasn't looked at as a, um, as a... It didn't have that weight of history that we have today. You didn't have this anticipation of 2,000 years, so the energy was a bit different. But um, uh, ter uh, tragically, that ended up in complete defeat of the Jews and genocide as well. And therefore... Once he was defeated, the rabbi said, all right, well, I guess he wasn't the Messiah. And in typical fashion, the, you know, Chazal, they use history to kind of promote the values they wanted to promote. And they said they came up after the fact with all sorts of sins that um, caused the destruction, right? And it all had to do with, 
you know, the, 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 the kind of values they were promoting at the time that they thought were the most important. That's typical rabbinic behavior. But what I want to say is that, is that as a Talmudist, if you go through the Talmud itself, uh, the Talmud is extremely um, sparse in details of the Bar Kokhba rebellion. So we know more about it from Roman uh, accounts than from Jewish accounts of people who lived at the time or were descendants of, of you know, the re- re- rebellious revolutionaries. And, and the reason that is because Chazal did not want to encourage more uh, revolutions because this ended in genocide and the Jewish people were absolutely decimated by Rome for rebelling. And Rome wanted to make sure we don't do it again. And the Chachamim, in their wisdom, didn't want to create a hero martyr culture among the Jews because they thought that it would end in the complete eradication of the remnant of Israel. And they therefore just suppressed the stories of the revolt, the bravery, how close we came, how cruel the Romans were, etc., etc. So they kind of put that story behind them and promoted... um, peace and promoted conciliation with the Romans. They still called Rome Malchut HaRish'ah, the kingdom of evil, but they didn't, um, they, they, they promoted just getting along with them and placating them. In fact, um, you'll find maybe two or three lines in the whole Babylonian Talmud about the Bar Kokhba rebellion. Right? Thousands and thousands of pages, people who were supremely affected by this revolt mentioned it a couple of lines in Masachid Gitin. Right? So that's uh, something that's worth noting. And either way, the point of this is that the, their view of the Messianic period, of the Messiah himself, was a very natural view. It was not something overly mystical and dramatic. Okay. Now, the Christian... Uh, Christianity was the first time that non-Jews in large numbers took Judaism and spun off their own religion, you know, into that. Maybe Maimonides' view on Christianity is actually worth another podcast, but not today. Um, Basically, we're just focusing on the Messianic issue. And they took the Messiah idea as they were really... uh, amazed by this apocalyptic messianic ideal. And it was, not, it was, again, it started as a Jewish cult because there were many Jewish apocalyptic cults. We have evidence of them today at the time, and Christianity was one of them that was marketed to Gentiles at a time when Gentiles really needed a religion to replace the primitive Greek gods and pantheon. And they, they, it came at the right time. And there are reports of uh, many Romans converting even to Judaism before Christianity, but once Christianity came, that was perfect for them. It was both progressive enough to answer their you know, evolutionary needs for a useful religion. It solved psychologically a lot of issues. I mean, this is a, another whole podcast, which you won't get into. But specifically, the, 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 their view of the Messiah was much more apocalyptic, much more mystical. It was not uh, a process that happens and then whoever's left standing at the end of that process is going to get the Messianic title. No, no, no. What they thought was that the Messiah is a spiritual superman sent down by God, right? And he redeems us. So he's the redeemer. Now, 
it wasn't an idea that had no sources in the prophets. There was some sources in the Tanakh that would back this up, but this was not the overall view of the rabbis. And in the in the in the in the ancient uh, conflict between Jews and Christians, the, there was no um, conflict. It wasn't like we have today, where Jews would tell Christians would say, you know, Jesus is the Messiah because of this and that verse in the Bible and whatnot, and Jews would say, oh no, he didn't fulfill. You know, he didn't, I mean, they say he didn't fulfill all the requirements, but so, if someone did X and he would be the Messiah, right? Um, it wasn't, it, it, the argument was not over the, uh, the, the identity of the Messiah. The argument was in the process itself. In other words, like, is Jesus the Messiah? Well, did Jesus fulfill any of the uh, requirements that the, that the Messiah needs to fulfill? And over here, some confusion came in. Because what exactly are those requirements? You know, so the Talmud is not the most um, not the most uh, easy to read for a layman. So only great scholars were able to carry themselves intelligently in the debate in the Tanakh and the Talmud. And Maimonides typically he kind of condensed it into simple words. And in, his, in the end of the Mishneh Torah. You know, he goes and t- has this famous explanation of the Messianic period. And he says, it's very simple. Everything we set up until now, he promotes the Jewish idea that it's a natural process. The person is going to fulfill three things. He'll gather the exiles, right? Bring them back to Israel. Build a temple in Jerusalem. And he'll, uh, he'll bring all of Israel, you know, to follow the covenant again. And it's pretty much like the common denominator of all biblical messianic prophecies. Nothing too dramatic about that. The fourth prerequisite, obviously, is that he is from the, the, the house of David, which maybe today can't be proven directly, but we'll, we'll get to that. But that was what Maimonides wrote, and that pretty much summed up the Talmudic rabbinic view, and this is why we, re- we rejected Christian view of Messiah. Now, over time... You know, a thousand years and another thousand years, and we're you know we're forced to debate Christians and you know the famous debate with Nachmanides and, and Christians. It's worth looking at that debate and and sometimes when you debate someone for too long, you get lost in their frame of reference, and that as well as other factors which I'm going to explain, kind of brought Jews around many Jews around to this. Christian frame of reference. Yes, they rejected Jesus, but they didn't reject the model of Jesus. And they adapted the mental model of the Messiah as a superman who comes from heaven and redeems us. You know? And all the false messiahs that the Jews have, have come up with, whether it's Shabtai Tzvi or Schneerson, they're all spiritual supermen. None of them need to actually fulfill anything in this world. They're all, uh, they come down from heaven, they're chosen by God from before they're even born maybe, and they have the right, uh, and you're following them is, is how you get close to God, and it becomes a personality cult. And that's something that, again, it's, it's this kind of concept of, often of semantic assimilation, where you can stay away from, your opponent's views and you can reject the surrounding culture officially, but you semantically assimilate their ideas and then take on your oppressor's 
behavior patterns or thought patterns without even knowing. Okay, and that happens when you're ignorant of what your the surrounding culture is about. You're not educated, and you think that you're being fanatically loyal to your own tradition, but in fact you're semantically picking up things without noticing. And this is one of those things that was picked up, and and the view of the the, the Jewish view of the Messiah. Um, flipped to the Christian view. And that had disastrous effects on the nation of Israel that we suffer from until today. Now, if you think I'm being melodramatic, I'll give you an example. Well, consider the Zionist movement. Okay, The Zionist movement was a movement of Jews saying that, well, we need to return back to Israel, we need to rebuild uh, the land, and we need to have a national home. There are different strands within the Zionist movement. Some were more militant, some less militant, some more religious, some less religious, but they all kind of agree that we need a national home in Israel. Now, how did the religious community react to the Zionist awakening? Well, they rejected it. Why did they reject it? They rejected it for religious reasons, because their religious view of the Messiah was that we need to wait passively to be redeemed by a spiritual superman. They didn't have this Ezra view. You know, Ezra the scribe in, this, in, the, in the Tanakh, he didn't wait for a prophecy to come back. As soon as he saw a political opportunity, he was there, you know, uh, lobbying the king of Persia, lobbying the emperor to get Jews back to Israel, fighting the Jews, you know, the enemies, and, and, and trying to rebuild the temple, right? Um, Barak Ochba didn't have a religious, spiritual, prophetic vision. He just saw an opening, a weakness that he saw as a weakness in Rome and thought he can defeat them. So, but now the, the rabbis, right, who've been in exile for almost, you know, for 2,000 years basically, and they've been semantically assimilated, their reaction to Zionism was one of a rejection, and, and the reason, for the most part, obviously there were religious Zionist rabbis as well, and they can be commended, but why did the majority of religious Jews reject Zionism? Why did the majority of the rabbinic councils in Europe uh, turn against, you know, against the Zionist movement? The answer is because they assimilated semantically, and they did not view the messianic um, prophecy in the Jewish model, they viewed it rather in a very Christianized model. And that's why, then that's a disaster. Now, where's the disaster? The disaster is that it took a rebellion against God and against religion to make a successful Zionist movement because within Judaism it just couldn't happen because the rabbis were the official flag, you know, the flag bearers, the pole bearers of Judaism, they were the ones who were saying that you cannot be Zionist. You got to wait for God to save you. And intelligent Jewish leaders had to reject Judaism, reject rabbinic Judaism as they saw it, right? Obviously, I see it as a perversion of rabbinic Judaism, but they had to reject what they saw as rabbinic Judaism in order to do what needed to be done to get the Jews out of Europe before it was too late. That was literally what happened. Now, had Jews not semantically assimilated, had they been like they were in the time of Yudah Halevi and Harambam and so on, there were attempts to resettle the land and, you know, maybe not conquer it because we were physically, militarily weak at the time, but 
It could be that if we haven't have not assimilated over those over those generations, over those centuries, into Christianized thinking, we may have been more active, and we may have uh, had our own state earlier. The Holocaust may not have happened. Had there had a Jewish state been uh, been established in the in the time of Napoleon, had uh, all the energy that was spent on on the false Messiah Shabtai Tzvi, who was just raising funds and you know kind of strutting around as God's chosen and waiting for miracles to happen, had that energy been spent uh, trying to raise an army and colonize Palestine at the time, fight the Turks, whatnot, maybe it would have been successful. Well, we don't know. It's, it's always easy to be Monday night quarterback. But at the end of the day, Israel today has this huge divide between observant traditional religious and not religious and that divide isn't going anywhere. Part of the reason you have that problem is the fact that Israel was born as a revolution against this kind of passive religious thinking. And it goes deeper than just Zionism. Because the conflict in Israel itself is a conflict of, are we going to be a progressive people or are we going to be a regressive one? And it, unfortunately, the religious side of the equation seems to be pushing for less education, less progress, and, and, and what they see is like more God and more Torah. Now, what would Maimonides say about that? Well, I can definitely say that Maimonides would not be on the side of the religious in this argument, not because he's not deeply religious, God-fearing, and pious. He was, but because the way he viewed monotheism it was all about progress. It was all about technology and education and ethics. Not to mention the fact that, according to Maimonides, you weren't allowed to take any money for Torah. So there's nothing that the religious parties promote that Maimonides would be comfortable with. So that much I can definitely say just from you know his writings alone. Now, um, back to the messianic issue. Today we're it's 2020, Nam, right? Now... Now, in, in, in today's day and age, we still kind of are waiting to be redeemed passively. We're not actively redeeming ourselves. We're not doing... The Messianic prophecy is just that certain things will be done. Once it's done, the man or woman on top will just get the title, and that's it. The Messianic period will have been uh, announced and established and settled. But instead of that, you know, where many of us are just passively waiting to be redeemed that's my point okay about about you know just Maimonides view on the messiah but maybe before we end the podcast it's worth thinking about why like why be redeemed on a deeper level not not just politically okay Jews have political uh, independence okay and they have their own state just like every other nation has a state now we also have one. Yay. Great. But why? What is the purpose? What is the universal value of the Messianic period? Does Maimonides have anything to say about that? Does the Torah have anything to say about that? And the answer is a resounding yes. There is a purpose for all of this. And this is uh, really a... I mean, uh, guys, this podcast is just conversational. It's not a class with texts. Everything here really needs to be delved into in a deeper way, but I'm doing my best to kind of uh, at least get this conversation started and share these thoughts with, with my friends. So 
what would be the universal value of the Jewish people being redeemed, going back to you know, the temple? Like, it seems kind of particular. And you know, what would be the universal message and all of that? So the, way, the best way I can begin to describe it is a fact, uh, another uh, Talmudic, kind of cryptic Talmudic statement and Maimonides' explanation of it. Right? So the Talmud in, uh, you quote me, I don't remember the, exact place in the Talmud, but trust me that this is what the Talmud states, that um, in the time of the Messianic period, things will be great. And one of those things, what's going to be so great, you're going to have bread growing from the ground and clothes, suits of clothing hanging on trees. That's just something the Talmud states. And uh, Maimonides in his introduction to the 10th chapter of Sanhedrin, where this Oh, that's where it is. It's in the 10th chapter of Sanhedrin. So, I remember now. So, my man is there. He, he, he discusses this and he says, well, what do you think that means? Does it mean that it's going to be magic? Because one of the things that my man states about the Messianic age is not to expect any miracles. Okay? Everything will be natural. Now, so what about this? Seems like a miracle. And he goes, no, it's not. It's a figure, as you see, he just says it's an ancient figure of speech, and he claims that in ancient Arabic there was also such a similar figure of speech. It means things will be much easier to achieve than today. There'll be some sort of thing in the world. Human ingenuity will create a shortcut where you can, instead of having to grow wheat, dry it, winnow it, separate the seeds from the chaff, grind it, knead it with water, let it rise, put it in the oven and bake it in like the perfect temperature. All the process of breaking bread of baking bread will be just like it's growing from the tree. You're just gonna go to the grocery and it's gonna be some bread in a bag. You're gonna pay a couple of dollars and just gonna buy bread. And the guy in the grocery he he gets it shipped. You know, that's basically what he's saying, right? And same with clothing. The painstaking process of taking animal wool and leather and cotton, and turn, uh, linen, and turning those things into wearable clothing will be much shorter. Clothing will be cheaper. Food will be cheaper. But technology, that's what it's predicting. In the time of the Messiah, there will be great technology. That's what the Talmud is, is discussing, which is kind of true. And why is that? Why do we need that? Imani says, we don't need that so things just will be easier for us. But since we'll have to spend much less of our days struggling to make basic necessities to make our ends meet, we'd be able to focus more time on what he calls the knowledge of God, which is a shortcut for the knowledge of everything. Because God is a creator of everything. And how do you know God? How do you love God? By studying everything, by being educated. And by being ethical, right? So it's easier to create an ethical society when people don't have to spend all day struggling for their most basic necessities. That's the purpose of it all, and this is worth considering. This idea can be developed pretty far, and this the meta politics of this can take you to understanding contemporary politics, both in Israel and anywhere in Holland and America, and so on. That this would be the I guess a, a little head start, a taste of Maimonides' metapolitical views. All right? There's much more to say on the subject, but I want to keep these under 30 minutes. And 
I'm going to summarize by saying that the, the period we live in today is considered technically the Messianic period because the people of Israel have returned to their land. And I think we're, we're at a stage today where more Jews live in the, in the state of Israel than in any other place in the world, if not in all of the world combined. And that has legal, theological, sociolo- sociological meaning as well. And since that is the case today, we're definitely in that period insofar as the Messianic prophecies have been fulfilled. Now, not all of them were fulfilled, and we're not there yet, but the process has begun. Okay, Now, that's a very interesting and amazing thought, but that has ramifications as well. There's ramifications how we conduct ourselves, how we consider the miraculous return of our nation to our land, and now it's incumbent upon us to carry it to the next level. And what is that next level? The next level would be to rebuild the temple and renew the covenant with God, the same covenant of keeping the Torah. And what exactly does that mean? What is the covenant with God? How do we as a people collectively keep that? That's going to be an entire uh, podcast on its own. And that would be all for today. Thanks for listening. Shabbat Shalom.